Okay, last time. Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Proverbs. And uh, here we go. Uh, This is the jet tour through Proverbs. I put that picture up just for Roger Recksteiner uh, there. Um, And uh, so many, many years ago, uh, John MacArthur, who at least I had the privilege of being in his church while I was in seminary there, uh, he did a famous sermon. It was in one of his top ten most popular sermons in, in uh, 45-plus years of uh, ministry at Grace Community Church there in the L.A. area, and he called it the a jet tour through Revelation. It was the whole book of Revelation in one message. And uh, if you haven't heard that, you might go on the Grace to You website and listen to that. It, it puts a very difficult book in context in one message uh, but so so since hearing that and kind of being influenced by that, often I'll borrow the title, steal the title, a jet tour, um, when we get to the end of a book. And uh, so here we are, a jet through a jet tour through Proverbs. And um, why do we need Proverbs? We need Proverbs for so many reasons. But let me let me just read a verse to you. You don't need to turn there; just listen. And this is why we need Proverbs. Uh, especially today. Um, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we say, yeah, that's what fools believe. That's right. And what we forget is that we all come into this world because of our fallenness, because of our sin, as fools. There's not anybody that is born into this world wise according to Scripture. We all come into the world as rebels against God, uh, denying God's existence either formally, I don't believe in God, or we deny Him in practice, don't we? We say we believe Him and then we live like He's not real. And the book of Proverbs is, is designed by God to address this universal need for rescue out of our foolishness and that's why we need it now you say why do we need that today we need it today because we have more technology we have more knowledge we have more capability we have more skills we have more i mean look at the world man i mean think about treva i mean they just they just removed her immune system as it was and through a genetic manipulation rebuilt the thing i mean is that not crazy i mean you you thought star trek was good man that that, that's incredible and we praise the lord for that don't we we praise the lord for that uh you think we, we we just put another lander on mars another one um you have more technology in the phone, in your pocket or purse right now than the sum total of man's space flight through the Apollo era when they put men on the moon. And yet, you know what? With all that being true, we are just as in need of wisdom as the day Adam and Eve were created. Uh, none of that changes our hearts. None of that changes our spiritual disposition. You can't Google the answers to the most important questions of life. 
You can't find a medical intervention or a therapy that will help your soul the way only Jesus can help your soul. And so it's easy to think, man, we got all this stuff, we got all this technology, we got all this ability, all this medical intervention, and yet the Word of God speaks to us. And it reminds us that as thankful as we are for many of those things, those things cannot address our most important need. You have children? Parents? You have children? You have grandchildren? Okay? None of that can help them with what they need the most. And that's why this book was written. This book was written to young people modeling what we as parents and grandparents ought to do to help them to see that their greatest need is only met in the person and work of the Lord Jesus as he is prefigured in this text, in this book. And um, that is what life is about and that is what we really need. So with that in mind, this is is such a a contextually relevant book. let's, Let's jump into our jet tour and I don't know if we're going to go that fast this morning, but uh, we'll we'll go uh, somewhere near that. So let me just remind you of uh, this book. You, you have a complete manuscript, by the way, so you have four pages of everything I'm going to say. So just sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and uh, I hope we can have some interaction here. I, I'm really, really interested to hear what was helpful to you in our study. And like me, you probably look back and you go, if I'm honest, I don't remember half the study. That's me too, and I'm the teacher, so... But I'm really curious as we review some of this, what, what was helpful to you and what stood out to you. So feel free to shout that out or, or come talk to me next time. Yes, James Harrell. One of the first things, it may not have been the first session, but the first thing that just jumped out at me is like, I mean, you sort of know my situation and my family. It's like how your kids turn out, you'd like them to turn out good because of everything you did. Our, my responsibility is to be faithful. Hmm. Yeah. On yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's comforting. Yeah. Yeah, I think what James is saying is... Yeah, no, you're right. And that's the balance, right? I think a lot of parents today are in despair because they think they did something wrong because their kids didn't turn out the way that they wanted them to. And James is absolutely right. The hope of this book is that God doesn't call you to manufacture spiritual maturity in your children. In fact, you can't manufacture spiritual maturity in your children. What you can do is be faithful. And the reminder of this book to parents and grandparents and all of us that are ministering to children is to be faithful in that task. But it's up to the individual child whether or not they're going to follow the Lord. Okay, And there, there is hope in that. I think there's a lot of parents that are wrongly discouraged because they've thought that they could somehow produce this in their children and now they're looking at their adult children going i failed but faithfulness is what god is looking for you're absolutely right and i appreciate that reminder so some background who are we talking about here um solomon is the main author of our book you remember that and uh, you remember the story and this just there's so much we have to cover here but you remember the story that he he's a young king of israel and uh, he has some huge shoes to fill, right? His father is the King David. This is, this is the Goliath killer. I mean, this is, this is the guy who 
was the man after God's own heart. And now his son is coming, taking over his post as the king of the theocratic kingdom of Israel. And we remember back in those those early chapters, uh, we can read the story in First Kings three, if you want to remember uh, that story, how uh, God uh, and, and King Solomon had a conversation where God asked him, what do you want? Gave him an opportunity that, that, that Solomon could have anything he wanted. And Solomon chose wisdom. Not riches, not prominence, not stuff, uh, not happy relationships. He chose wisdom. And because God was honored by that request, God not only gave him wisdom, but gave him all the rest. Solomon, even by today's standard, was the wisest man that ever lived. He was probably the richest man that ever lived. He had more property, more possessions, more access. Just It's mind-boggling what this man had at his disposal. Uh, The Bible tells us he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and God took these Proverbs from this most wise man and inscripturated them into a book that we call the book of Proverbs. Uh, You'll remember that it was composed sometime in the 10th BC and that it was edited and compiled into the form that we now have it in by about the 7th century BC. Uh, There's a reference here to how some of Solomon's uh, men pulled together some of his Proverbs and uh, organized them for us. And um, you have to remember when you're reading the book of Proverbs, there's two main sections. The first 10 chapters really have context. Uh, still poetry, so it's hard to follow. But when you get to chapter 11, um, there, you get sort of a random topical sort of approach. There is context still, but it's much harder to study. So usually from chapters 11 and following, it's, it's easier to, to study the book topically as we've done here in this context. Now, notice, if you look, if you're, you're in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, and uh, look at verse 8. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, and we'll see... Uh, one of the themes that help us, helps us to understand the background of the book. Chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Uh, we see that the audience, the main audience that we are, that this book is written for, is children and young people. So if you're a high school student, or a junior high student, or a college student, this book is is particularly designed for you. We know all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, so it's all profitable, right? But this book is uniquely written for young people. And so um, if you are one of those young people, uh, this ought to be in your daily devotions constantly. Now, old people, for the rest of us, this is good stuff too for us, right? It, it's, it's good and we need to learn from it. But it's really designed uh, for young people. And, and for those of us that are parents or grandparents, by way of illustration, Proverbs is really a parenting manual because it's for young people, but it comes to us in the context of a dad sitting down with his children and ministering the word of God to them. Chapter 1, verse 8, hear my son, your father's instruction. That, that's, that's the picture is Parents sitting down with their children, teaching them and training them these things. Now, Proverbs, what a proverb is, and that's what makes the book so interesting, a proverb itself is a short, memorable saying that conveys a nugget of truth. That's why we love it, right? Because we live in a soundbite generation. 
you know, fast food spirituality, right? Whatever you want to call it. And, and, uh, obviously there's some weaknesses to that. But the value of Proverbs is, is you, you can just, you, you can go to the bottom line like this. You ready? Um, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Woo! I mean, that, that's, that's a lot there in one verse, right? Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What are some of your favorite Proverbs? I want to hear what you've learned. Uh, and I have not been keeping up on you. I've not been a very good teacher in this regard. But have you been doing the Proverbs challenge? Are you reading a chapter of Proverbs every day or close to every day or once a month or something like that? What's some of your favorite Proverbs? I, I, this is your, your your time here now, guys. What, what have you learned in terms of... Uh, some of your favorite proverbs. Wow. Wow. We could talk all day about that. You know, the parallel to that, the heart of man plans his ways, but God redirects his steps. Right? Wisdom and submitting to, you know, we make our plans right, but ultimately submitting them to God. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's right. That's right. So good. So good. Any, any other? Yeah. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path. Yes, yes, that's a real popular one, isn't it? Yes, so good. Other nominations? Other? A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's right. Regine? That's right. That's right. Very good. And do you see how easy it is to, to memorize? If, if, if you are not memorizing scripture, this is a great place to start. You, you get a lot of bang for your buck in, in Proverbs. You really do. Because uh, even, even the nature of it is such that it makes memorization much easier because of that parallelism, because of that saying the same thing two different ways or, or maybe contrasting one with another. Um, so that's a good thing to do. So the one thing we have to remember about Proverbs, and, and this, is, this goes way, way back to the beginning of our study, but I want to repeat it again as we conclude. Biblical Proverbs are always true, but may not be comprehensive or exhaustive on the subject. So for example, on your notes there, 10.4 says, lazy hands make a poor man, but diligent hands bring wealth. We say, okay, great. But we know... <laughs> That someone may lose his wealth by bad friends, don't we? So in order to get the comprehensive picture, we must take into account all that the Proverbs actually say. And really all that the whole of Scripture has to say. Uh, we can find isolated Proverbs that are that seem to not be true, but it's because we're taking them in isolation with other Scripture. We take them as if it's the only thing the Bible says. Now, here's here's the challenge of the book of Proverbs, and I, and I want to repeat this challenge to you today, and I hope that you become lifelong students of the book of Proverbs, as in all the scripture. 
Um, the challenge of this is come and learn to be biblically wise. I mean, I don't think if I ask for a show of hands, should I? Does anybody here want to be spiritually stupid the rest of your life? I mean, is that, is that you just want to, you know, be a fool for Jesus in, in, in the in the Proverbs sense of the word fool? I mean, no, no one would raise their hand and say, yes, I want to be an idiot Christian. But see, the reality is we come into the world at that level. And by God's grace, as we see the word of God, and particularly as we look at the book of Proverbs, we grow into wisdom. But it's not something you you just manufacture. It's not something you just come up with. It's something that you have to learn and follow the Proverbs instruction in terms of how that actually happens. And so that's a challenge. We all need wisdom. There's not anyone in this room who has plateaued in wisdom. And there is not anyone in this room who is too young to be wise. That's what that's what's remarkable about Proverbs. The, the hope of Proverbs, if you're a young person, the hope of Proverbs is you can be wiser at your age than people that are old enough to be your grandparents and have tremendous life experience. You can be wise at a young age if you will take your faith seriously and walk in the ways of the Lord. And that's the challenge. You remember... Um, uh, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 99-ish, somewhere in there, he says, I have more insight than all my instructors. Why? Because God himself has taught him. Wow, that's, that's a really, really encouraging thought there, isn't it? Okay, so with that in mind, let's remind ourselves of the foundation of wisdom and if you're in Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to stay right there. The foundation, if you, if you miss everything, everything, we could reduce this down to one thing. Life is about a walk with God. And wisdom is the outcome of a walk with God. The, the, the Proverbs takes a walk with God, and it reduces it down to this one phrase. And, and, and you, you know this. What it means to walk with God is someone who fears the Lord. And if you're reading especially the Old Testament, you see that phrase a lot, right? You know, so-and-so feared the Lord, and so-and-so walked in the fear of the Lord. And, and that, that's code language. Did you know that? That's Old Testament code language for a believer, for someone who is trusting in the Lord and walking in His way, someone who fears the Lord. So when we see... In chapter 1, verse 7 of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What Solomon is saying is the, the starting point of knowing and being wise is a walk with God. You can be old, you can be experienced, you can have a full life, you can have money, you can have degrees, and you can be a spiritual fool because you have no walk with God. And contrastly, it doesn't matter your background, your upbringing, your, your checking account balance, uh, whether you have letters after your name in terms of degrees, whether you have education or family or, or skills or talents or gifts. It doesn't matter any of that if you will come to know and follow the Lord. You will be wise. And you will have what so many people want and are looking for in all the wrong places. The fear of the Lord. Remember, the, the Bible reminds us that there's, there's really two types of, of fear. There's what we might call terror fear. And this is really simple, right? You ready? 
uh, you are horrified because of danger or threat. And we all know what that's like. But what the Bible is describing here in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord, is what we call awe fear. A-W-E. Awe fear. It's awe or, or overwhelming um, amazement that leads to honor, love, and worship. And that's why it's complicated. That's a complicated fear, isn't it? It's an awe that leads to reverence. It's an awe that leads to honor. It's an amazement that leads to worship. We, we, and, and I just threw down all the vocabulary here, right? It's respect mingled with love. It's devotion and awe. It's respect, esteem, reverence, honor, adoration, glory. All of those begin to get at what the Bible describes as the fear of the Lord. And notice, let's not, let's not forget this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? One, chapter 1, verse 7. You say, but, but Pastor Keith, there's lots of people that know lots of things and they don't care a lick about the Lord. Well, that's true. So what's Solomon saying? He's saying, you don't know anything truly until you know through the lens of the fear of the Lord. I mean, think, think about that. There's all sorts of ways to learn stuff, but you don't know the purpose of that knowledge until you know the Lord, right? You don't know how to glorify the Lord with that knowledge until you come to know him. And have you noticed this? That we are, in our fallenness, we are really, 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 really good at taking the gifts and knowledge that God gives us and using them for all the wrong reasons. And I'm not saying that unbelievers don't use their knowledge for, for good occasionally. We know that, right? Medical science is a great example of that. And, and you know, great teachers that pour their life into our students that may not know Jesus and, and all the rest. But to know truly, to know in a way that glorifies God, to see life the way that God is truly intending it. We, we think of it as what we call a biblical worldview. You do not get a biblical worldview on life and what there is to know without the fear of the Lord. That's what he means. Um, Titus, in Titus chapter 1 verse 1, says there's a knowledge that leads to godliness. And that's, that's a New Testament version of what we're talking about here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All right thinking about life happens in a relationship with the Lord. Okay? Now, no, notice this, this great theme that we see here. I uh, just, just sort of summarized it for you because it's, it's, a, it's the theme of the book of Proverbs. The fear of God is a choice. You have to choose the fear of the Lord. It means hating evil. It's the source of godly confidence. We'll look up a few of these along the way. Fearing God forms the foundation for wisdom and knowledge. It prolongs life and brings blessing. It keeps one away from evil. It restrains from sin. It compels one to obedience. And ultimately, the fear of the Lord removes a fear of everything else. And let me just, let me just demonstrate one of these for you. Uh, flip over to chapter 14. Verse 26, and I, and I did told you you could sit back, relax, so if you just want to listen, that's fine. You got the full notes there, but um, it is worth probably taking a few minutes and following along. I'll have you look up a couple of these verses just by way of review. So chapter 14, verse 26. Listen to this. Chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. Think about that. Think of how we te- 
think about how we think about confidence, right? We, we typically think there are people that lack confidence and lack uh, an esteem. And so we say those people are are needing self-esteem and they need to love themselves and they need to have confidence in themselves. And, and you know this, right? I mean, watch, watch advertisements, watch it how coaches work in sports programs, watch how teachers teach in academic settings. You know, you have to believe in yourself to succeed, right? That, that's one way the world approaches this whole thing called confidence. The other way is those people that are just already sort of self-confident, right? And they're, and they're, they're the guys that, that are out there that are doing antics in the end zone, you know, jumping into kettles and stuff like that. Uh, and they just have a complete, absolute confidence in themselves and the bible says both of those people are fools because the path to godly confidence is found where what's that in god confidence is a good thing but confidence in yourself whether sort of natural or whether derived through self-esteem is foolishness The Proverbs is going to go on to say that the fool is the one who puts confidence in himself. Okay, so I'm supposed to go through life just, oh, I don't know, I don't know anything about anything. No, no, no. You go through life finding confidence in your relationship with God. You're confident because you know God. You're confident because He has it all. You're confident because you are in Him. You're confident because you have His sufficient word. You're confident because you trust He does all things well. You're confident because on your worst day, you know your heavenly father still loves you and is in charge. And you can trust him. You see that? It's just one of many examples of how a fear of the Lord, a relationship with him changes this whole thing and builds a true foundation for all of life. Now, notice this. You got a little picture here. I had to give you a picture. You knew that was coming. The fear of the Lord is the center point of this book, right? It's, it's the center and, and the main theme. And then what, what Solomon does is he builds themes around that. Have you noticed that? The fear of the Lord is the foundation. And then he builds all of these different themes as he teaches his children in the context of this book. But what we're supposed to see is that the fear of the Lord is the foundation in forming all of these areas of life What is that called? It's called wisdom. You see that? That's what wisdom is, guys. Wisdom is when a walk with God and an understanding of His Word informs all of life so that you can walk in His ways. We we might say that that biblical wisdom is... A relationship with God that means I know how to honor Him in every situation of life. Money, friends, work, you name it. That's wisdom. Wisdom is not going and getting a degree in a a specialty discipline. Wisdom is not being the best uh, running back you can be. Wisdom is not accruing... wonderfully comfortable investment portfolio to feed your retirement. Those are great things, but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is walking in the fear of the Lord and knowing Him and letting that inform how you look at life so that you can honor Him in every area. You see that? that that's, uh, that's how I would turn the book of Proverbs into a picture. 
Okay, so right out of the gate, or, uh, if you turn back to chapter 1, I want to just illustrate a few of these for you. I'm, I, I'm tempted to just do the whole thing over, but we'd be here for weeks. So um, I just want to touch on each of these themes, each of those, uh, uh, what are those, eight themes that we just saw, and just remind you of some of the high points of this book, and then we'll, we'll make some conclusions, okay? Chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. I think one of the, the most profound things about this book, and this, you, you, you talk, I mean, I mean, look at all the parenting blogs and, and social media, and th- this is radical stuff today. You ready? Wisdom starts in the home. Wisdom starts in the home. That's what we see here. And, and this is, this is crazy. What is God's primary spiritually, spiritual delivery system for getting supernatural wisdom into naturally foolish children? What, what is that delivery system? Is it A, UPS, B, Amazon Instant Download, or C, normal, ordinary dads? Woo, right? That's radical stuff, isn't it? You don't find it on a blog. You don't get it in a class. You get it through parents. And maybe I'm a parent and I just need to preach this to myself, but I, that, that is, that is amazingly overwhelming. So dads, moms, grandparents, great grandparents, uh, you don't have any children in your family. That's fine. We got lots of children here on Wednesday night. You can be here, show up Wednesday night. You can, you can be a part of this because it's an all hands on deck endeavor because children need wisdom and the, the primary delivery vehicle of supernatural wisdom to naturally foolish children is called dad. Now, now notice that this is, this is really radical stuff. So let me just read it to you again. Uh, verse nine. Indeed. Or, or, hear my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head, ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son... Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread a baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Just just notice, can I give you dadhood in like a couple of verses here? This is normal Dad and momhood. This is what parenting and grandparenting and ministry to children ought to look like. Notice this. Dad is with his children. Let's, let's just be commander obvious here. Dad is with his children. He's not off somewhere all the time. He's not in the garage. He's not on the golf course all the time. Though Those things are great. But he's with his children intentionally. He takes initiative to teach and train them. He trains his children to listen because he was an actual dad. And as another actual dad, I understand that children don't listen sometimes the first time. Have you noticed this? They don't listen the first time. So you have to train them to listen. He trains children to take seriously his instruction. You know, how many parents just, 
yeah, whatever, I know they're not really listening, but I'm just going to kind of go through the motions. And No, he trains them to listen. He trains them to take seriously his instructions. He trains his children to not dismiss or forsake teaching from parents, including listening to mom. Notice the content in verse 8 there. He's, he's giving instruction. He's giving teaching. The, the words means directions or rules and guidelines. Uh, uh, one of the dictionaries that uh, I referenced here talks about discipline or instruction is education that is theocentric. I like that. You're teaching your children's things, but connected back to who God is. You're not just saying, son, this is how you, this is how you hold the club, right? And here's how you set your, your feet, you know, and here's how, it's, it's not just that. It's, it's skill and knowledge and wisdom that connects back to a walk with God. And notice, he, he teaches them the value of, uh, you don't have to, you have to teach your children that these things that the Lord has for them are valuable. Teaching from parents are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Children must be trained to see the great value of wisdom. And, and notice, notice how he does this. A godly father's counsel is tender, isn't it? He's not barking out orders like a dictator. He says, my son. There's tenderness and gentleness. His commands, his instructions are clear and direct. He says very clearly, do not follow their lifestyle. Do not be around them. And then he doesn't just tell them what to do. This is so important, guys. He's helping them to know how to think about the situation from a biblical worldview. They run quickly to evil. They're eager to shed blood. And notice the appeal to known biblical morality. Son, you know these things are wrong. You know that's that's how it works. And I love this too. He uses appropriate examples, illustrations, and stories that help children understand biblical truth. And remember, he says this, even a dumb bird knows better. Being creative with your children, connecting with them. And notice, just this is, the, again, that's the flyover, right? Dad has a clue what's going on, doesn't he? He knows who his children's friends are. He knows what those friends are doing. He knows what they're all about. And he gives wise, gentle, kind counsel to his children. Okay, you get the idea. That, that's so important. And again, you don't have to be a dad to benefit from this. This is how you do ministry with young people. I bet some of you are going to see your grandkids in the next couple of weeks. You're going to see your grandkids. Holiday season, you're going to see some grandkids. All right, got some grandparents here. What a great model to think about relating to your grandparents here in a few grandparents, grandchildren here in a, in a few weeks. Um, good reminders. And like I said, if there are no short people within arm's distance of any realm of your life, we will gladly take you on Wednesday night in our children's ministry. Because uh, this is a, an all hands on deck ministry to, few, to naturally foolish children who need supernatural wisdom. One of the topics and it's interesting, those, those eight topics sort of form the key topics of life, don't they? Especially from a young person's standpoint. What, what is the first thing, when you drop your child off at college, when they're a freshman, you, you, you make the drive, you pack them up, and you're dropping them off, and they've got the, the welcome week, and there's all these booze all over campus, and, and half of those booze are not clubs on the campus of your school, they're banks and credit card companies. And do you know why they want to do that? Because they want to get your 18-year-old signed up with his first or her first credit card, knowing that they don't have established credit, which means 
which means you have to cosign. Oh, there we go. Yeah, you guys know the drill. You have to cosign, and that child will be tempted like they've never had before with that credit card to rack up a whole bunch of debt that mom and dad are ultimately accountable for. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that giving your kid a credit card when he's 18 isn't a great thing to do. I mean, there can be a wise way to do that. But you can think that money is one way that young people can destroy their life very quickly and very early. The average college debt following a four-year college education is astronomical. And that that 22 or 23-year-old college graduate gets her first teaching job, gets her first uh, nursing job or, or um, whatever, and they're looking at like $250,000 of college debt at a nurse's salary. And you go, well, how many years is it going to take to pay that off? How many years are they going to be in bondage to their creditors? And they want to get married. They want to buy a house. They want to start a family. And they're going, we can't make that, right? So, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, college loans are all bad or anything like that. I'm saying this is a way children can completely put themselves in bondage very early. And so what does the Bible say? Remind yourself that wealth comes from God and you ought to honor God from your money. Don't get involved in all of that. Don't trust in money. Don't weary yourself for it. Don't be deceived by it. Trust the Lord and honor Him with what He gives you. Proverbs is going to say this. You ready? Um, Don't purchase things that you don't really need. That you don't really have money for. How relevant is that? It's, It's a 10th century BC book and it's relevant today. So be careful with money. I love what the Proverbs also says about work and laziness. Now, now some of you grew up in a generation where we don't even need to talk about this, right? Because you grew up in a generation that moms and dads did a really good job in, in, a, in a culture that was largely promoting of it, of what it meant to work hard, of what it meant to value a dollar, of what it meant to do your work heartily as for the Lord, to do excellent work, to do skilled work, to show up on time, to do the job completely, to go the extra step, Right? And all we have to do is go to the local fast food, you know, McDonald's or Taco Bell or whatever, and realize that we are in a whole different generation, aren't we? Whole different generation. This is so important. Who, who, who is going to train this generation of children what it means to walk with God in terms of their work? They may have a genuine heart for God, but they have no work ethic. They have a poor work ethic. So remember our sluggard study? Do you remember that? I know that was a long time ago. Slugger does not begin when he should, right? Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? He doesn't begin when he should. He needs to get started. He needs to learn to take the initiative, we might say. Chapter 12, verse 27. The slugger does not finish what he starts. This is actually really funny. A lazy man does not roast his prey. Why? Because he's too lazy. He goes out, takes out that prized deer, whatever he's hunting, 
And he never gets around to enjoying the benefit because he's too stinking lazy. There's another proverb, remember the one where, where the sluggard buries his hand in the dish? You get the sense he's at the dinner table, he's eating and he's so lazy, he puts his spoon down, he doesn't even finish his meal. Learning to fear the Lord in our work. Laziness hurts others. The sluggard makes excuses for himself. He doesn't plan for the future. Remember, remember Solomon says, hey son, look out the window. Look at that guy's house. Yeah, dad, I see it. And it's overgrown. There's thorns and thistles and the yard is a mess and the, the wall is broken down. And Solomon looks at his son and says, see, that's not how you want to be. God entrusted you with those items. You need to be a good steward of what God gives you by taking care of your things. So we see that in the book of Proverbs. We also see the topic of friendship. And I, I, I love this part of our study what, is it, what does it mean to be a biblical friend? What do you remember? What does it mean to be a biblical friend? It has something to do with Facebook, right? I've got 527 friends, man. Well, that's great, but that doesn't really mean a whole lot, does it? Do, do, do you feel it like I do that we need to rediscover what it means to be a friend in today's generation when social media has so distorted that? There are people that will go online and broadcast to millions and millions of people their deepest feelings. And they lack one real true human being that they can go share with. And I think that's sad. I mean, I think it's awesome that I can get on Skype and talk to my missionary friend in Dubai. I think that's awesome. I, I was uh, talking with a, uh, a student of mine in uh, Florence, Italy a couple weeks ago. How cool is that? He just calls me up. We just have a conversation. It's like he's in the room next door. Well, I praise God for technology like that. But technology can also have a detrimental effect, can't it? And we have, this generation is probably one of the loneliest generations because they have misunderstood that God designed the church and family and neighborhoods and communities for actual human-to-human relationships. You premarital, I could do a lot of premarital counseling. I can tell you, young people don't know how to talk face-to-face. They don't get that. Because they don't know how. They spend most of their time doing it in other contexts. And again, I'm not bagging social media. Facebook's awesome. Twitter's awesome. Be used, use it for God's glory. But, but you, there is no substitute for a biblical friend. So, so just, just look at the fly over here with me. A biblical friend practices love at all times. The proverb says a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What does that mean? That's right. That's right. A real friend tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Do you you know why we aren't further along in our biblical Christian maturity than we ought to be? You know, in part, why that happens is because we have a dearth of biblical friendship. 
where I might see something in your life that needs to change. You might see something in my life that needs to change. But we don't have the type of relationships where we help each other with that. And yet a true friend, according to the Bible, is willing to wound another person for good. A friend is considerate. He helps others when able. He makes edifying friction, right? I love that. Um, As iron sharpens iron. So a man sharpens his friend, helps his friend. See, what does that mean? Sometimes growth in relationships comes through friction that is worked through in biblical ways so that we both are better for it than simply avoiding one another or staying superficial. You see that? You and I need people in our lives that aren't just like us and don't agree with everything we say. We, we need a common commitment to the scriptures and to the Lord and in relationships that are sometimes bringing about conflict, but as we work through that conflict, it brings good results. Encouraging counsel, enduring the relationship, and of course the Proverbs talks about avoiding the wrong type of friends. If, if money is a big enemy of our young people, another huge enemy would be the wrong type of friends. We go around the room and there are moms and dads, grandparents here. We could all tell stories about how one of our kids or one of our grandkids got involved with the wrong crowd. Right? We, we all know stories like that. We have, story, we have very personal stories like that. The influence of the wrong type of friends. So we have to be careful. I love what Proverbs teaches us, too, about emotions. And uh, we, we spent a whole lot of time on this. But let me, just, let me just summarize it for you as we think about what does faith look like in terms of your emotions. How about this? Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. What's that saying? He's easily influenced. Yeah. Okay, so if you had a city that has a wall around it, but the wall is broken down, or lack it, you know, the, the city is broken down, it's without walls. There's no protection, right? There's no security. You're an easy target. And the writer compares that to what? What's that? Emotions in in terms of what regard? That's right, but... What's, What's the valuable commodity here in this person that we're thinking about? An ability... To control yourself. Self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, we know. Think of what you could be like with self-control. Wow. Right? And it's interesting that the Proverbs has a lot to say about self-control. Why would a book written to young people have a lot to say about self-control? Talk to me, parents. Why does that work? Because they don't have it. And what else? It is hard. But what happens when you start learning some self-control before the Lord? It does. It helps you to deny yourself. Do what's right. It does make you more accountable. Now, now does self-control just help you with one area of life? No, man. No, 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 no. When you have self-control, that affects everything in your life. Which is, which is why if we look at the sections in the New Testament, like Titus chapter 2, 
that talks to young men. It says, urge the young men to be sensible. Say, what's that mean? Urge the young men to have self-control. And then it says nothing else. That, that may say something about, you know, just keeping it simple for talking to guys. Or, I, mean, I don't know. But what it does emphasize is if that young man acquires self-control, there's a thousand other things that he's going to benefit from because of that. But if he lacks self-control, there are a thousand things that will go wrong, even in spite of progress made in those areas. Self-control that comes from the fear of the Lord. Look at this. A a fool gives full vent to his anger. No self-control, right? But a wise man keeps himself under control. You say, what's the secret to self-control? Keith, tell me. What does the Bible say is the secret of self-control? It's wisdom that comes in the fear of the Lord. You will control, listen very closely, you will control yourself for good if in that moment your eyes and your affection and your worship and your love and your desire to honor are on the Lord instead of yourself. It is wisdom, isn't it? That's it. Live in the fear of the Lord and you will have self-control. And this book illustrates that in dozens of ways. Remember, I'll give you an example. Remember Proverbs chapter 5? The, the passage that talks about immorality and the guy goes and he hangs out next to the prostitute and all things go wrong. And, and uh, is it cha- it's chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. You can write that down if you want an example. Here's what it says. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. And he watches all his paths. What's that saying? He summarizes this whole thing about avoiding immorality saying, son, if you, if your eyes will be on the Lord, if you will remember that you live coram deo in, in the face of God, in that temptation, you will choose honoring him over gratifying yourself. That's what he's saying. Proverbs 5.21. Okay. Notice how the Proverbs helps us to think about our words too. The Proverbs remind us that our words really reveal who we are. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. What's he saying? He's saying you can tell the quality of the man by listening to his words. Sounds like Jesus in Luke 6, right? The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, Jesus says. Words are powerful for good or for evil. Proverbs says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow. You know what that says? It says every single person in here has been given by God a huge influence. Called your mouth. The question is, how are we using it? The Proverbs would call us to speak the truth and to speak to build others up and to speak wisely. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A wise man contemplates how to answer, but a fool spouts forth folly. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of the sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. How we... You think about that. We talk about money, right? We talk about emotions and self-control. 
talked about friends. Think of how you can utterly destroy things in your life in one careless moment of saying the wrong thing the wrong way. Some of you know that. Some, some of us right now are experiencing ongoing pain because we said something very hurtful a long time ago to somebody and we're still feeling the effects of that. Or maybe, or maybe something very hurtful was said to you and you're trying to get over that still, even though it may have been some time. And the Proverbs shows us the absolute power and, and, and utter influence of our words, both for good or for bad. We've talked about addictions. Proverbs 23, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine. So you see how we're doing this? These are, these are like the eight areas of a young person's life, and old people too, like us, um, that are so influential, so determinative. Addictions, okay, so we're, so... You go, you take your son or daughter, you drop them off the college campus. You got the credit card companies to worry about. You got the friends to worry about. You've got self-control issues to worry about. And next to all those credit card companies, the whole rest of the booths are fraternities and sororities. The vast majority of which are about creating an identity in the party and culture, the party culture of the university. Do you, do you know, guys, how many college students have serious addiction problems? One of the most underreported issues in, in the world because of the nature of it. Alcohol issues, pornography issues, drug issues, you name it. And, and it's intentional, right? You're going to come and form an identity in this brotherhood called a fraternity, and we're going to teach you what life is about, and having a good time and having a party. And before you know it, alcohol becomes a regular part of that person's experience. Crazy out of control. And the Bible says wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. We're thankful for those one or two Christian fraternities and sororities out there, some of which are very solid. We praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for campus ministries that are trying to make an influence in that. Local churches that have Bible studies trying to get college students out of that horrible environment where they will find an identity in Christ rather than in those, those debauched cultures. You talk about a danger. You know, there are some of us in this room that are still struggling in sanctification because of bad habits we developed in college. And in those early years. Finally, Solomon talks about intimacy and temptation. A theme of this book, we talked about it, right? Self-control, emotions, money, friends, addictions. Sexual temptation has to be in that list, doesn't it? For young people and old people. The Bible calls us in chapter Proverbs chapter 5 to understand the deceitfulness and destructiveness of immorality. It's deceitful, it's destructive. He says in chapter 5, verse 3, The lips of the adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. She looks good, she looks attractive, it's desirable. Verse 4, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. She is sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol 
She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and yet she does not even know it. In chapter 7, the parallel passage, Solomon, as he's training his son, watching this, this young man go down the path of sexual immorality to his own destruction. He says he's like a dumb ox going to the slaughter. In verse 23 he says, and he does not even know that it will cost him his very life. The book reminds us about the the need for geographic distancing, that, that one of the ways we stay pure before God is not going anywhere near temptation. To live in the fear of the Lord, to guard your heart. He says in chapter 7, verse 25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. It's a heart issue, right? It's not just about looking at pornography on a screen. It's what your, your heart really desires and wants. Don't let your, far, your, your heart follow after. And then in this very shocking turn of events, right in, smack dab in the middle of Proverbs 5, Solomon turns around and says, Son, but you know what? Intimacy in the context of marriage is awesome and designed by God to that end. It's holy. It's enjoyable. And it ought to be pursued, which is why we need chapter 31 to remind us that God entering intimacy in its proper context of marriage is the right pursuit. So you better pursue the right type of spouse. Don't get caught up in things that the Bible says don't matter. Okay, so much more that could be said. Let's let's bring this to a conclusion. Think about who wrote this, guys, okay? Who wrote this? Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, young king. He comes in, filling the shoes of his father David. God says, I grant you more wisdom than any other man has ever had. He had more money. He had more wisdom. He had a great heritage, right? And he does what? Remember that? Remember those first couple of years of his, his, um, reign? You got the two ladies that come fighting over the baby. Remember that? He's my baby. No, no. He's my baby. And, and Solomon says, bring me a sword and I'll take care of this. And based on the reactions of the ladies, Solomon was able to determine who was really mom. We go, man. There's never been anybody like this on the throne. This is incredible. And he goes, and as he goes on in his reign, we discover that Solomon had a huge, huge weakness. The Bible tells us that he loved many foreign wives, or many foreign women, and made many of them his wives. This guy had 1,000 women in his life, either through marriage or through the concubine system. And what did they do? His addiction, his sexual temptation problem, his lack of self-control led his heart away from the Lord and he basically destroyed his life. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's biography. And he says, I had everything, I tried everything, and all of it was worthless. Now, young person, you, you want to learn from that. Because you'll be tempted in all the same ways. And to learn from Solomon's example is a much better way to learn. Listen to what he says. And, and, and go ahead and turn there if you don't mind. It's just the next book over in Ecclesiastes. 
chapter 12, at the very end of his life, right? He, Solomon starts off well. He writes the book of Proverbs young. He's talking to young children, right? He, he, he writes the book of Proverbs early on in his parenting, early on in his reign. Things are going so well. We have this wonderful book of wisdom. And then he wastes it. He walks away from it. He destroys his life. And you know what happens to his kingdom? Under his rule, he sets up for Israel to be divided into two kingdoms. His own son who had jurisdiction over one of those, a horrible, wicked king. A fool, that's right. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, listen to what he says. He comes back. It's like he repents and he comes back and he says, chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your creator when? When is the time to establish your faith firmly fixed and unmovable? When is the time to build the fear of the Lord that you will benefit from the rest of your life? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. There it is. He says, I tried it all. I strayed from the path. It's all worthless. It's all vanity. And so he gets to the end of his biography. At the very end of his life, we understand that he repents. He comes back. He turns away from this. And in chapter 12, verse 13, look at what he says. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because that's what? That's the theme of Proverbs. Now, I I wrote here, wisdom, fallenness, and what matters. Because the reality is, guys, Solomon's biography parallels a lot of our own, doesn't it? Many of us started off with a Christian home or or a good, solid upbringing or church, and we strayed. Many of us strayed. And the biography of Solomon's life is that, you know what? There's time to repent, isn't there? You can come back. One of my favorite songs... Uh, a Christian song says, you can walk a thousand steps away from God, but it's only one, only one step back to Him, the step of repentance. And we need to remind ourselves that through our brokenness, through our sin, through our straying, we look at Proverbs and we're convicted because we say, I didn't parent like that. I didn't live like that. Is there any hope for me? And Solomon's life demonstrates that there is. Because whether you're young or old, you can take one step back to God in repentance and faith and He will take you back because of the grace and the work of the Lord Jesus. This is the conclusion. Fear God and keep His commandments. We, many of you quoted Proverbs 3 as your, one of your favorite verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths Straight. That's the heart of the matter, I think, to fully trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own wisdom. Verse 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will keep your, your paths straight. That means you have to cultivate the habit of knowing God in every area of your life. There should be no area of life hidden from the influence of the Lord and His Word. And the Bible says here, He will straighten out your life. Not by taking all your problems away, but by being with you and guiding you and helping you each point along the way. So verse 7 of chapter 3, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's it. That's life in a nutshell. 
Don't trust yourself. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Trust Him. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. Fear Him and turn away from evil. And we remember that all of this, the source of all of this, if we just back up one chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, is the Lord who gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. There's lots of stuff we can learn and know in this life. Only the Lord gives wisdom wisdom now watch this last verse i promise colossians chapter 2 guys colossians chapter 2 colossians chapter 2 verse 2 and 3 we want to remember the source of true wisdom is the lord who gives wisdom but god has a specific plan for bringing this wisdom and energizing this wisdom in our lives we we have to go to the new testament to find it Now, you remember that in the book of Colossians, the Colossian Christians, this early church, was tempted to look for wisdom in all the wrong places, just like today, right? We can go social media, we can Google it, we can go get degrees, we can go online. But Paul reminds Colossians that there is only one source of true wisdom and true knowledge. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining, okay, here's the underlining part, okay, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, now watch this, watch this, are you watching? Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing that Proverbs is saying, but with the New Testament complete, right? It is in the Lord Jesus, the person and work of the Lord Jesus, that establishes a relationship with the Lord so that we can walk in the fear of the Lord. And and if you miss everything else, just remember this. In Jesus, this verse says, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in Him. There is nothing that you truly need in this life that is, a pa- that is found apart from Christ. In fact, everything that you truly need to walk with God in wisdom and in delight in this life is found in the person and work of Jesus. He is wisdom personified. All right, we're taxing to the gate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful, amazing book. And I pray, Lord, that it would be a source of encouragement and counsel and instruction both now and in the years to come. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who makes wisdom available to us through the gospel. And we thank you for your word that unfolds the person and work of Christ from Genesis to Revelation so that we can see and learn and grow in these things. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would walk in the fear of the Lord. We would trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We would not lean on ourselves. We would learn to acknowledge you in all of our ways. We would fear you and turn away from evil. Lord, will you help us to walk in those things? And might... uh, Might your wisdom and your counsel continue to guide and instruct us as we seek you.
Lord, we thank you for our study. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and pray that you will uh, continue to guide each one of us in the things of the Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.